Father, as we turn our hearts now to your living word, we come before you transparently, really the only way that we can, because you know our hearts and you know our minds. Lord, you know the weariness that we've felt as we've even come into this place of worship today, if not emotionally, physically, but probably both physically and emotionally and perhaps even spiritually. And so we come now to your word because we need you, Lord Jesus. We need your Holy Spirit to remind us of the hope and the truth of the gospel. Father, we need your word to empower us and to encourage us even how we should view what we have seen this week in the midst of your sovereignty and in the midst of your providential hand in our lives. And Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts today, illuminate our minds by your Holy Spirit and fill us, God, fill us with the joy of your presence Renew us, even in the midst of difficult days. Renew our strength, O Lord. So we pray, Father, that you would hear our prayer. Do this, Father, in the name of Christ, your Son. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure that most of us have entered this place this morning weary. Uh, Physically, we have been giving of ourselves. Even perhaps if you've returned to work in the evenings, you've been going out and you've been helping to gut homes. Even if you haven't, the sheer volume of stress that you've experienced, probably with the the upset nature of traffic patterns in the city, that's probably been enough to bring stress into your life this week. Uh, We have seen a lot, we've digested a lot, we're in the midst of processing a lot, and so this isn't a psychological evaluation for you this morning, but I want you to know that it's okay to take time to process and to go through the deep emotions that come with seeing all of people's household items piled on the side of the road. It's okay to take time to process, it's difficult to process it all. So what I, what I wanted to do this morning was look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and see how Jesus speaks to calamity that happens in the midst, uh, in the midst of... I didn't realize that was going to be the, uh, the backdrop, so I'm sorry it caught my attention when I saw the picture up on the screen. Um, we're going to see how Jesus responds to calamity uh, in the midst of a context in which he found himself. You know, according to the advocate, state officials said that this past week at least 40,000 homes in East Baton Rouge Parish alone flooded. And in the affected areas just in East Baton Rouge Parish, there were 110,000 homes that's in the neighborhoods that have flooded. It's expected that 30 parishes will declare... be declared as disaster areas, and the cost projection has not yet been determined as to what all of the devastation will cost. Of the three hardest-hit parishes, East Baton Rouge, Ascension, and Livingston, Livingston Parish was the hardest-hit parish. 86% of its homes 
were located in flooded areas, and 21% of those homes that were flooded most likely didn't, only 21% most likely had insurance. The remainder did not have insurance. I also have been updated that 13 people perished during the flood this past week. So even if you didn't flood, you feel the emotional weight and the devastation as you look around, as you travel around, because it's affected every area of our lives. I've heard so many people say this week, I was spared from flooding so that I could serve others who did flood. I mean, I've heard that from just a lot of different people, not connected with one another, and that's many people's mindset. But even so, I want to encourage you not to let that mindset produce a sense of guilt for serving, but let our service be rooted truly in Christ and what He has done in our lives and the joy of Christ that promotes and and prompts our hearts to go and to serve others who have been flooded. And so when catastrophic events occur, how are believers to respond? What's the biblical worldview by which we approach calamity, such as this recent natural disaster that we have experienced? So this morning, the title of the sermon is Calamity and human suffering. In Luke chapter 13, I want to invite you to follow along as I read from verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans' blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This morning, I want us to see that in the midst of calamity, Jesus calls us to repentance and fruit-bearing lives. Jesus calls us to repentance and fruit-bearing lives. How do we view calamity, natural disasters? What's the biblical worldview with which we approach things that happen that are catastrophic like this? Well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus took current tragic events and he, he used them to teach truth about the gospel and about human suffering. And so we see that times of calamity cast light on our mortality and point us to God's universal call of repentance. This is exactly what Jesus is speaking to in Luke chapter 13. Well, Luke chapter 13 is connected to Luke chapter 12. It's one teaching session that he has been teaching to those who are listening to him. And in Luke 12, Jesus begins teaching about God's judgment. 
he exhorts all of his listeners to live wisely. And to live wisely means heeding God's call to repentance. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says to those listening, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus addresses two tragedies that were fresh on the minds of the people. The first one he addresses was the Galilean atrocity. Some of his listeners brought up the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. More than likely, some Galileans were in the midst of worshiping during a pilgrim festival, and Pilate came in and he slew those who were worshiping and actually mixed their blood with the sacrifices that they were offering. And so they're pointing at how, how catastrophic, how horrible this was. And then the second one that they point out Jesus speaks to is the Tower of Siloam. He's speaking of 18 on whom the Tower in Siloam fell and killed. Most likely that tower was being constructed or it was undergoing renovations and it was located at the Pool of Siloam. And there were some who were bystanders that were just standing there. And as they were standing there or or, or working there in the pool, the tower just completely fell on them. It collapsed on them. And these were calamities that Jesus is dealing with. The Galileans and those whom the tower of Siloam fell on. They were calamities that produced suffering in the lives and in the families of those who perished. And the reason Jesus brings this up is because the common worldview of the day saw such calamities as God's judgment on those who suffered. And so lest we hear anyone speak in such a negative way about the natural disaster, this is God's judgment on Baton Rouge, I I cringe if I hear that. The common world view in that day was if they suffer this calamity, then they've experienced God's judgment. But in response to this world view, I want you to hear what Jesus says. Jesus is dismissing spiritual elitism in verses 2 and 4. In fact, he responds by challenging their assumptions about catastrophic events, human suffering, and about God's judgment. These events were tragic. They were tragic because people perished, just as the floods that we have experienced this week are tragic. They're tragic because people perished. They're tragic because of the destruction that they brought. I think they're even more tragic because they expose the temporal nature of humanity. They expose our transitory, our transitory nature in this life. They, they remind us of our own mortality. Calamities expose the chaos and the curse of sin in the world by revealing the frailty of life. Something that Andrew, Pastor Andrew was speaking to during our time of confession. One moment. We're enjoying life, and the next moment, the sky is falling for those in the pool of Siloam. Or, one moment we're enjoying life, and the next moment there's this deluge that comes, and this great torrent comes in, sweeping everything away and interrupting our lives, literally. And so in verses 2 and 4, Jesus touches on what I think is the common denominator that befalls all men, 
when we stand before God. And what he's saying is in the midst of calamity or catastrophe, what we need to see and realize is that ultimately we are all sinners who stand before God. So it's not about God's judgment on a particular people. It's about understanding that God will judge mankind for his sin in the midst of all that is going on. And so he says in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? They're not any worse sinners. Or he says in verse 4, Or do you think the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Because the stench of their sin before God is no worse than yours, than mine. The reality is, ultimately, no one is exempt from God's judgment. And God calls all humanity to repentance because we are equally sinful before God. And so human suffering and calamity and death exist in an imperfect and fallen world because of sin. And what Jesus is teaching is that calamity draws our eyes heavenward to show us that everyone must deal with their sin before a holy God in a timely manner. And so Jesus dismisses the notion that those who suffer calamity or natural disasters are necessarily experiencing God's judgment. The point Jesus makes, really, is that all are sinners. And all sinners will face God's judgment one day lest we repent of our sin and believe upon Him. So the right response to calamity when natural disasters strike, it isn't a spiritual elitism as was the common worldview of the day. It's not a dismissal of the events because we suffered no loss. No, it's to understand that in the midst of calamity, we're pointed to our need for a Savior. And in the wake of calamity, we, 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 we must come to a place of repentance and trusting upon Christ by faith. If I've shared this with you before, forgive me. But while I was in seminary, I co-led a ministry on Sunday mornings in the French Quarter called Church in the Square. This ministry, in this ministry, we would take breakfast down to the French Quarter and we would feed the homeless men and women that were in the French Quarter. But before we would feed them, we would share and we would preach the gospel there right in Jackson Square. And then after we preached, they would come up, receive a hot meal. And then for any that wanted to, we'd bring them back to church with us. And then we'd feed them lunch and have a time of discipleship before teaching them the word, before we brought them back down to the French Quarter and dropped them off for the evening. It was an incredibly great ministry. Over the time that we... We're participating in church in the square. We saw about 14 men and women come off the street and become productive members of society again. But after Katrina, I was, I share that to share this. After Katrina, I was homeless. Tara and I, we had one son, we had Isaac at the time, and I was driving for Louisiana Department of Wildlife. I was driving for Cary International, but working with Louisiana Department of uh, of. Uh, wildlife and fisheries, and also working with FEMA, driving people out of the city. I would go to a place where they would bring people out of the floodwaters. They'd get on my bus, and I would drive them somewhere to either the Superdome or the convention center. Uh, and after doing that for about two and a half or three weeks, I was just very weary. I had seen all of this destruction and everything piled up, and I wasn't 
I didn't have the, uh, the compass to, to know how to navigate that and how to process it all. And in the midst of all of that, I was staying overnight at a truck stop, sleeping on the bus, waking up the next morning and driving in to, uh, into the city and then coming back out. And so all of this is happening. And one day... Um, Red Cross shows up in like a bread truck that says Red Cross on it, and they begin handing out bag, uh, brown bag lunches. And I'm standing in line waiting for a brown bag lunch to be given to me, and that is, it's in that moment that it hit me. It hit me that I'm no longer the one that's handing out meals. Now I'm one who's in line receiving a meal. And it was in that moment that I realized, but for God's mercy and grace, I wasn't out on the streets like the homeless population that I had been serving for the last two years in New Orleans. And for me, it was an incredibly humbling realization to sit there and to understand just how quickly things could change, just in a matter of moments. So friends, let me say that when we come before God, there is no distinction between those who are better sinners and those who are worse sinners. You see, there's no greater sinner is what Jesus is saying. We're all equally sinful before God. We're all equally guilty before God. And so Jesus calls us to repentance. In the midst of calamity, it teaches us to look to God and calls us to repentance Verses 3 and 5, we see this in contrast to their faulty assumptions. Jesus says the same thing twice. Verse 3, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Jesus, we saw what happened to them. Man, God's judgment must have been really severe on them. And Jesus says, no, let me tell you, unless you repent, you're going to perish just the same. He says it again in verse 5, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Here's what Jesus does in his infinite wisdom. He marries calamity with hope. The real, fre- uh, the real threat of imminent death in the face of calamity gives this shocking jolt to his listeners. And Jesus moves from physical death to spiritual reality, saying that repentance is the key to hope, and it's the key to life. You see, repentance isn't just changing our actions, right? Repentance is changing the direction of one's life. Repentance is a deep work that happens internally. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly sorrow says, I'm sorrowful and grieve over my sin. I turn from it and I depend upon God for my deliverance. It is this confession of of our sin but worldly sorrow says i'm sorry and i grieve that i got caught in sin and i hate the consequences next time i'll be more careful as proverbs 26 11 says like a dog that returns to its vomit so is the fool who repeats his folly an anonymous poet wrote there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path that hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God Himself has sworn that He who goes is lost? How far can one go in sin? How long will mercy spare? 
where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent, ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. Just as Jesus challenged his listeners in the face of calamity to hear his call of repentance from sin, he calls us to the same. He calls us to trust Christ, to trust in him who ultimately has satisfied God's wrath against our sin and he gives us life and he gives us hope. Because the reality is that God has poured out his judgment on Christ that we, by believing on Christ, might have eternal life and escape the condemnation and the wrath that God would pour out upon all who are sinners and who have not confessed Christ as Lord. And so he says, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. You see, calamity teaches us to live wisely and to heed God's call to repentance. Our common denominator as humanity, in humanity is it's sin. And repentance that Jesus calls for is a timely repentance. Because there will come a time when God's grace in your life and God's mercy towards you to repent will be no more. And so I just want to issue this blanket statement today. If you're, if you, if you're, if you're here... As you're here this morning, if you are one who has not repented of sin, confessing Christ as Lord, perhaps what God is doing in the midst of your life and in the midst of this calamity that we're experiencing is trying to draw your eyes heavenward to look to Christ, to say, I repent and seek for forgiveness of sin in your own life. Secondly, this morning, I want us to see that God is patient with His people for fruit-bearing Lives. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter tells us God's desire. That is, he says, God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is God's desire for his people, for humanity. He wants us all to come to repentance. Let me ask you a question. What would you do? If you owned an apple orchard and the best looking tree in the orchard year after year failed to produce one piece of fruit. In fact, all it has done over the last several years is soak up all of the nutrients from the ground that it's planted from this fertile land. And in doing so, it's 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 robbing all of the surrounding trees of the vital nutrients that they need. Yet it still isn't producing fruit. What would you do with that tree? You would cut it down, right? I'd cut it down. Jesus tells this parable as a story against the people of Israel in verses 6 through 9. God is the vineyard owner in verse 6. And he he told this parable, a man had a fig tree, he planted a vineyard, and, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come now seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So God is the vineyard owner who comes looking for fruit after three years. 
And after three years of no fruit, he says, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And then we see also in this parable that Jesus is the vine dresser who replies to the vineyard owner saying, let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. And next year, if it bears no fruit, fine, then cut it down. But give me this year to tend to it. Now, the point of the parable isn't that we need to bear fruit or be judged. Rather, the point of the parable is that Jesus has come to till and to fertilize the fallow ground of God's people. It was through Christ's death and resurrection that the truth of this parable ultimately became reality. God, as the vineyard owner, demanded righteousness, while Jesus, the vine dresser, was exercising mercy. God, as the owner, had every right to demand that the tree produce fruit. But the vine dresser says, give me one more year. John Bunyan, the great Puritan preacher, he addressed the tree in one of his sermons. I just want to read a few lines about what he said in addressing the tree. He said, barren fig tree. See how the Lord Jesus by these very words suggesteth the cause of thy fruitless soul. The things of this world lie too close to thy heart. The earth with its things has bound up thy roots. Thou art an earth bound soul. Then Bunyan has Jesus, the vine dresser, address the owner, the father, saying, Lord, I will loosen his roots. I will dig up this earth. I will lay his roots bare. My hand shall be upon him by sickness, by disappointments, by cross providences. I will dig about him until he stands shaking and tottering, until he be ready to fall. I think as we read this parable, we see how the vine dresser, Jesus, comes with compassion digging around the tree and the roots just enough so that it's tottering, but holding his hand there so it does not fall. And then understand what he's doing in the midst of digging around the tree. He's loosening the roots. He fertilizes the earthbound soul with his word by his spirit. And in the midst of calamity, God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't he? He has a way of loosening up the soil, maybe, that that lies within the root system of our own lives. And in the midst of calamity, Jesus calls his people to repentance, and and not only to repentance, but also to fruit-bearing lives. And so here's the challenge I want to issue for us this morning. First, let us assess our own lives, church, in regard to the truth of Scripture. Let us assess our own feverish attempts to hold on to the material at the expense of the eternal. Let us ask the hard question, God, how are you loosening up the soil that is packed around the roots in my life? And let us wait on God and let us wait to hear what God would speak to us through his word and how God would use us, how God would fertilize our lives with his word to speak and to bear fruit in the lives of others. In the midst of this great calamity, is Jesus unearthing the roots in your life? Is he loosening the soil 
the things that we hold on to? How's God working in your life? Have you, have you spent time, believer, to reflect upon what God is doing in your life and wants to do through your life in the midst of this great calamity? It's not enough just to say, God spared me, so I'm going to serve. We must hear from the Lord. We must seek to serve Him and to be fruitful for His kingdom We must hear from God in the midst of all that we're doing to serve. It's very important. Secondly, let us not be like church and believer, both. Let us not be like the fruitless tree in the vineyard. Let us not miss the opportunity that God gives us in the midst of great calamity to bear fruit with the hope of the gospel. This may look like all the things that I've heard of our people, Crosspoint, and many other churches, not just Crosspoint, the church as a whole, across our city. It may look like coming alongside neighbors and demonstrating a willingness and a servant's attitude to help pull up carpet, to help knock down sheetrock. It might look like opening our home to those in need and housing them as uncomfortable and tight as it may get over the next couple of weeks or even months. It may look like washing clothes and delivering meals and volunteering at a shelter. But it's important for us to hear God's call in the midst of calamity as a church to rise up and to be a blessing in the community in which God has planted us. So let us not be like the fruitless tree in the vineyard. Let's not miss what God wants to do through us and through the church in Baton Rouge. Thirdly, let us look for the opportunities and be intentional to share the hope of the gospel of Christ with those that we serve. Church, you know that we're not called to produce fruit. The believer is called to bear fruit. And we bear fruit by remaining in Christ. And so in the coming days, as we have opportunity to demonstrate Christian love to our community for the glory of Christ, let us not grow weary. And hear me, if you hear nothing else this morning, believer, hear this. Let us not forsake our personal time in study and prayer because it is vital to sustaining your soul as you drive around and as you help others, and as you experience the chaos and the destruction. We can gut houses and wash clothes and prepare meals. We can do all of that in our own strength. We can. And it's what we see many in our community doing. That does not make us distinctly Christian, church. What makes us distinctly Christian is the presence of, of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that is in our lives and the way that God initiates our hearts to come alongside of others with compassion and share the hope and life of Christ that He offers in the midst of great calamity. That is what makes us distinctly Christian. And so in the coming days, don't forsake the living source of the water from Christ. Don't forsake God's Word. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness during those 40 days, he said, man does not live on bread alone, right? 
but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Church, in the coming days, let us cherish God's word. Let us cherish God's word forever, but let us cherish God's word. And even when days are long, let us not forsake to take time to dig into God's word, to spend time in prayer, and to have a word to share with others in the midst of great calamity. This morning, I want to challenge us as a church. But before I do, I also want to challenge those who, uh, those who are here this morning, and perhaps you have never come to a place in your life where you've surrendered to Jesus Christ. You've never said, I'm repenting of my sin and owned up to your sin before God. And I want to challenge you this morning to hear God's word and to hear the word that Christ speaks to those whom are going through a difficult, catastrophic time, a calamity. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. You see, the key to hope and eternal life is repentance before God turning from our sin, placing our faith and trust in Christ for what He has done to forgive us of our sin. If you've never come to that place in your life, I want to encourage you that you can do that today by simply praying before God, confessing your sin to Him, surrendering your life and asking Him to, or submitting and saying, God, I I submit and surrender that You are in control of my life. I repent of my sin I confess you as Lord, and I believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, that he died on the cross and is risen from the grave. If that describes you this morning, I want to invite you in a few moments that you can can do that. You can pray a prayer such as that right where you're at, surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Then also, church, I, I want to challenge us in the midst of calamity to know and to recognize that God wants to use us to bear fruit in the lives of those who are hurting. God wants to use us as a church, as believers, to minister to those in the midst of our community. And so we see that, but let us remember that we must stay connected to God through His Word. We must take time to spend reading and praying and seeking God's face in the midst of all of the calamity that we see around us. I want to pray, and then this morning give you time to respond in prayer right where you are, to respond in prayer to what the Lord has been laying upon your heart by His Spirit. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that you are compassionate toward us. We thank you, Father, that you care deeply for us and that you would even use us as your people to come alongside those who are hurting, those who have lost so much and experienced so much devastation. We thank you, God, that you desire to use us. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful. God, help us to know when it's time to take a rest for our own health and our own spiritual vitality. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, as, as you use us in the midst of this community. Lord, we want to bear fruit for your glory. And Father, we know that in the midst of this difficult time, there are people that are hurting and they need to hear the hope that comes from the gospel. And so God, would you give us, would you lead us, lead our feet, give us even divine appointments as we engage with people in our community. 
Lord, and help us to speak compassionately and truthfully with the hope of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?